Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And as you can tell by the fact that I'm laughing before I even got to the introduction, it's because Marty Greer is back and she and I are going to talk to you about something that's actually not a laughing matter. It is a life-threatening, life-changing, drastic issue. Yes. And that is autoimmune hemolytic anemia. I first even heard about this disease in a clumber spaniel that took the dog down in, in very, very short time. Trupanion is the official pet insurance partner of both Pure Dog Talk and Westminster Kennel Club. I am thrilled to be attending Westminster this year, supporting Trupanion and their breeder support program. As the gold standard, Trupanion breeder support program partners have exclusive access to Trupanion's Go Home Day offer. Through these offers, Trupanion can provide owners and their new puppies with 30 days of immediate coverage and no waiting periods. Take a listen to this testimonial from breeder and veterinarian, Dr. Karen Potter. When I became a true panion breeder and I sent my litters out, I knew that they were going with 30 days of coverage had one of my owners have an emergency with them. That's comforting to me as a breeder to know that they can get help. As a veterinarian, there are many cases where we have to make decisions on how to treat things based on financial restraints. And when the financial restraints come into play, we can't always do absolutely everything for that pet. So if my puppies are covered, at least for those first 30 days, I know that if they get sick, they can get the best possible care. So what about your pets? Connect with Trupanion or visit them at their Westminster booth to learn more about their exam day offer program, which can jumpstart coverage in the 24 hours after your next exam. If you'll be at Westminster, I'd love to meet with you and hear how Trupanion has helped you and your dogs. Book a time to connect with me at the show by going to my partner page at puredogtalk.com and receive a free gift for your time. Remember, when it comes to protecting your champion and their litters, Trupanion has got you covered. So I thought this is one we have not covered. This is a serious, real live, deadly disease. So hit it. Yes, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, AIHA. Dreaded words, dreaded letters. And of course, it has a cousin, immune mediated thrombocytopenia, which is also life threatening, life altering, but not quite as bad. But sometimes they travel together and sometimes they travel mm -hmm. alone. So, autoimmune hemolytic anemia is, as it sounds, an immune mediated disease. But what it doesn't exactly describe is that. In this particular disease, the target cells for the immune response are the circulating red blood cells. So in a patient that has autoimmune hemolytic anemia, people have it, dogs have it, not as often in cats. Basically, the body attacks its own red blood cells. So the dog goes from being pretty clinically normal to being really profoundly sick, weak, out of breath, really, really sick sometimes with a fever, sometimes not, within a matter of hours to days. 
And when this happens, it requires an immediate diagnosis and immediate initiation of treatment, sometimes requiring blood transfusions, 24-hour stays in the hospital, all kinds of stuff. So it is a bad disease. So let's check off the, what am I going to see? So if I see this, get the dog to the vet now. So it will be a dog that suddenly becomes weak, short of breath. It's not a heart problem, but it can sort of look like that because you'll have that weakness. And the dog will oftentimes run a fever because as their immune response is flaring up, they'll spike a fever. Most common in middle-aged female dogs. So we don't see it as often in male dogs. So the last one I saw was a male dog that belonged to my hairdresser. And she called and, you know, because it was a Monday because she's off on Mondays. She was available. I was in surgery and she called and said, there's something not right about this kid. So I had her come in and looked at him. And as soon as you flip the lip and you see that really pale mucous membrane color, like their gums are white or close to white, sometimes jaundiced, if it depends on how rapidly the red blood cells are being broken down and how those are being managed, the dog will look something like a dog with a splenic rupture or hemangiosarcoma of the spleen where they're bleeding into the abdomen. It's that same really profound mm-hmm. anemia. Now, this tends to be most common, like I said, in middle-aged to older female dogs, especially spaniels, Cocker and Springer Spaniels, Old English Sheepdogs, Bichons, Bearded and Rough-Coated Collies, Poodles, and Flat-Coated Retriever. That being said, I've seen it probably in every breed. So I don't think you can say, well, mm-hmm. you know, I have a Corgi, so it couldn't be that. I don't really think that's the case. Mm-hmm. The last one I said, like it was a male, but usually it's females. You know, it's kind of interesting. I'm taking care of one dog that's had long-term treatment. She is almost a year old right now. So A, she's much younger than she should be. This started at six months of age. And B, she's a golden retriever. So she's Mm -hmm. been really, I mean, these people have spent, not with me because I saw her after the acute phase. They weren't getting along with their regular vet very well at that point. And they spent about $30,000 on her. So it can be incredibly expensive depending on how far you choose to go. My hairdresser's treatment was much less expensive because for one, her dog was little. So the drugs aren't as expensive when you have a smaller dog. Two is she chose not to hospitalize him. And if she just wasn't going to spend that kind of money, she couldn't spend that kind of money. And three, he didn't end up with blood transfusions and some of the more expensive drugs. So depending on what the treatment course is recommended and prescribed, it's going to dictate how much things cost. But it can be profoundly expensive if you're doing multiple blood transfusions. Those add up really fast. And has the treatment progressed? I mean, this has probably been 15 or 20 years ago when I first encountered it in someone else's dog. Has the treatment progressed to the point that the dogs now have a reasonable chance to make it? They still probably have about a 50-50 chance, which isn't great, but the drugs we have are much better for a couple of reasons. One is we have better drugs that moderate the immune system. So now we can use not just azathioprine, which is an old drug. Steroids are the hallmark, the backbone of treatment. So glucocorticoids have been around since the 1960s. We've used them for many, many years for this. So the backbone of this is still going to be steroids. So for those of you who are steroid phobic, you're going to have to get over it because otherwise, yeah, the dog's not going to survive. You have to use steroids, period, end of discussion, high doses initially with a tapering dose. So steroids are the backbone. We have better drugs that moderate the immune system. So we have azathioprine, which is an older drug. Now we have cyclosporin, atopica. Mm-hmm. We have some other drugs as well that people use either, I can't pronounce one of these very well because it's not a drug that I frequently use, but... 
like I said, cyclosporin, azathioprine, and then mycophenolate is the third drug that is mm-hmm. oftentimes used. I know that they use that at our veterinary school. And then one of the newer additions is to include a platelet drug that reduces the chances of platelet adhesions. So aspirin, of course, is an old drug that has been used for this for a while, but they've also added Plavix for some dogs. So that's the only anti-sticky platelet drug that I know of. And I hate to use blood thinner because that's really not what happens with anticoagulants. And some people use heparin on some of these as well. And then what I really didn't know that is new, and I thought it was kind of interesting, but it's hard to find much about it, is using melatonin in addition. So that seems to improve the response to treatment. I haven't really got a good handle on what the mechanism of action of that drug is. But the last time that I got this patient from the referral center, it said that the dog was on melatonin. And I'm like, I'm not familiar with that. But if you look it up, you can certainly find some things. And then we have to protect the dog against all the drugs that they're on because corticosteroids and all these other drugs can cause GI upset. So a lot of people will use proton pump inhibitors. They'll use Pepsid or omeprazole. I use a lot of caraphate, sulcrophate to protect the GI tract because we're dumping all this stuff down them. And then the other part of this is to try and determine if there's an underlying cause. So it can happen spontaneously in the middle-aged and older female. It can happen after a number of vaccinations are administered at the same time, but we see a lot of it related to tick-borne diseases. So we're circling back to Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, ehrlichia, and probably Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and probably 30 other tick-borne diseases that don't even have tests and don't even have names yet that are thought to be triggers for this. Because something makes your body say, that red blood cell that's in your circulation, no, that's not my cell. That's not my protein. My immune system's going to attack it just like it would a bacteria, a virus, or other foreign tissue. So that's what initiates this, is something in the immune system that goes haywire. Now, if it's rheumatoid arthritis, it attacks your joints. And if it's inflammatory bowel disease, it attacks your intestinal tract. If it's lupus, it attacks your skin. So this is just another version of one of the immune-mediated diseases that we see. There's um, polyarthritis where it attacks your joints. I mean, your immune system has to be really well cared for and it has to stay in check. And when it doesn't, things go down the tubes. Very bad, very fast. And so a real minimal prognosis, a relatively specific diagnosis, when you get the dog in, what are you looking for? So I've got white gums, I'm weak, I'm lethargic, I'm sick. Yeah. Are you doing a blood draw? What are we doing? Yeah, fever. We'll start with a blood draw. You'll start with a CBC chemistry panel like you will for most diseases. You want to see if the white blood cell count is normal. It's usually high in this situation because, again, it's immune-mediated, so your red blood cells are all charged up. Mm -hmm. The red blood cell count is typically pretty low. The platelet count may or may not be normal. Some of these dogs travel with both Mm -hmm. diseases, low platelets and low red blood cells. Those dogs are really in trouble. Most dogs pick one or the other. But if it's low platelets, that changes everything as well because that changes how you treat with anticoagulants and the antiplatelet sticky drugs. So there's some differences in treatment and there's differences in prognosis. Ultrasound oftentimes will be indicated if the dog is acutely anemic. You want to see if there's any evidence of a hemangiosarcoma, trauma, internal bleeding, anything like that. A lot of times on the chemistry panel, you'll see the bilirubin is high, the gums and the eyes can be yellow because if they're breaking down red blood cells really acutely, the liver can't clear the bilirubin fast enough so they become jaundiced. So that's pretty common. We're always going to do the tick-borne disease panel, at least where I practice, because tick-borne diseases are 
a dime a dozen. We see them all the time. And it's pretty common to have people not use their tick preventives because they're like, oh, you know, it's just a tick. No, it's not just a tick. We see dogs going to kidney failure from Lyme disease. We see dogs develop autoimmune hemolytic anemias with these things. So you need to take your tick-borne disease management seriously. So you may do a complete diagnostic workup, but one of the recommendations in the protocols that are published are not to delay treatment while you're waiting for all the test results to come back. It's great to get a Coombs test to see if the dog does have a response that's an autoimmune test. It's good to get um, the agglutination test. Your vet can do an agglutination test on a microscope slide with a drop of saline and a drop of your dog's blood and see if there's any evidence of autoagglutination. That takes a five-cent microscope slide, a zero cent drop of saline and about 30 seconds to do. It's simple to do. Some vets will automatically do it. Some vets need to be reminded that that's something to do. Coombs tests usually take overnight. But the real recommendation in this paper that's published and there will be an update on is not to withhold treatment until you absolutely confirm the diagnosis. So make sure the dog doesn't have a GI bleed. Make sure the dog's not bleeding from its spleen. And if none of those things are happening, then you're probably going to need to jump in and assume that it's some form of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia or um, anemia and start heavy doses of steroids and the other supportive drugs and the other diagnostics pretty quickly. So the I'm going to try it thrombocytopenia? Did you I get did. It right? Ain't not good. <laughs> Talk to me about what's different about that. Thrombocytes are the platelets. So thrombocytopenia, okay. penia means low. So thrombocytes are platelets. So it means low platelets. And those dogs will come in bleeding. They may bleed from their nose. They may bleed from their gums. See, that's the experience that like this dog I was telling you about, that was what right. was happening. It was just bleeding profusely from his nose and mouth. Right. And, and so that can be thrombocytopenia. That can be DIC caused by immune-mediated anemia or by other diseases. It can be caused by rodenticides, rat poisons. So again, you know, you have this list of things that you have to go down. If the dog comes in bleeding, you're going to be checking clotting mm -hmm. times to see if the dog got into rat poison, mouse poison, any of those things. A couple months ago on a Saturday morning, I got a phone call from a guy who called and said, I have a one-year-old healer and she came in and she's vomiting blood. Like, okay, so what did she get into? Because that's your immediate response is, did she eat a bunch of aspirin? Did she eat rodenticides? And he goes, well, you know, I was on my friend's farm the other day and I wasn't keeping an eye on her. And so she could have gotten into something. So those are the dogs that we're going to be chasing down a vitamin K problem with. But mm -hmm. if you're fortunate and your vet clinic can do a CBC and check the blood count, the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets, if they can do clotting times in-house, those are all things that are going to be really key to keeping that dog alive and getting the right treatment initiated quickly. Because the treatment for eating rat poison is much different than the treatment for having immune-mediated thrombocytopenia or autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So those are the differences that you want to distinguish. Now, we in our practice, I grew up on the human hospital side doing blood work on people. And so protimes and PTTs are something that we run on every single patient before they go to abdominal surgery. So we do protime PTTs all the time, many times a day. But many vet clinics don't have that equipment because that's not how they practice. That's not what they do. And so they may have to wait until the right. next day for the blood sample to come back. So when in doubt, you may add vitamin K to your treatment because that's not likely to cause a problem, but you're not going to use it long-term until you confirm which path you're going down. So when you have these dogs coming in bleeding, and they can bleed into their chest. They can bleed anywhere. Any place blood can leak, 
I had a dog come in with rodenticide toxicity that was limping because she was bleeding into her joints. So you can see almost mm. any symptom. And about the time you think you're like, oh yeah, I know what this is. I've never seen that before. Yeah. Then there's something you've never seen before show up and you're like, huh, look at that. About the there. time I thought I knew everything there was to know in veterinary medicine, boom, something bites you. It is a thing that none of us knows everything and we always learn something new every mm -hmm. time. As you should. As you should. You shouldn't have a closed mind about this stuff. You do have to do some diagnostics. So it is expensive to do the diagnostic workup. Some of the meds are expensive. Some are not, depending on how big the dog is and what treatment plans you do. If you do end up doing a blood transfusion, that's when it tends to get pretty pricey because those are hundreds of dollars per unit. Now, this is not borne out in this article, so I'm going to give you some personal opinions here because what we have for a resource right now that's probably our best resource on the veterinary side, and this is not something you have to be a veterinarian to find, but you may have a hard time reading through some of the terminology, is the ACVIM, which is the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. They have a whole bunch of consensus statements. You don't have to be a member of ACVIM. You don't have to be a veterinarian. But they have a bunch of consensus statements that date back about 20 years. And oh, so they wow. go through recommended treatments for dogs with seizures and dogs with Lyme disease and dogs with heart disease and, you know, a number of different really important diseases. And these are really smart people that get together as a group. They decide how they're going to analyze all the articles, all the data. And then they're going to put together a consensus statement that this group of people says, this is our recommendation for diagnostics and treatment. Mm -hmm. I know they're in the process of updating the one for immune-mediated hemolytic anemia because one of the people on the committee spoke to one of our veterinary groups a couple of weeks ago, and they're really close to having it out. And they've got some really interesting new ways that they're analyzing the data. So it's kind of cool to hear how their brains work right. and how they're assimilating this. So the information that's out there right now was written a few years ago. But it's going to be changing. So if you have a dog with any of these serious medical conditions, at least take a look at that. And even if you have a hard time piling through the terminology, there's some great information. And some veterinarians aren't aware that this consensus statement resource is out there. So if you do have a disease on that list that your dog is suffering from and you read through it and you find something that's interesting that you might want to talk to your vet about, take the article in. Mm -hmm. And then they go as far as saying that their recommendations are weak or strong on some of these things, which I think is really helpful. Interesting. Too. The strong means we need to do this on every patient. The weak are like, well, there's some information in the literature that suggests that this might be helpful, but we don't have enough data to really know for sure. So that's when you and your veterinarian sit down and have a conversation about risks, benefits, costs, all the things that you need to discuss to decide what's best for your dog. But when it says strong, you probably should be doing it. But anyway, in my humble opinion, I've seen some dogs get worse after a blood transfusion because what you've done is taken a dog who already doesn't like their own red blood cells, and then you give them someone else's. Even if you've typed and cross-matched the dog, you still have a dog who has new red blood cells that they're like, I didn't like what I had before, and I'm surely not going to like what you're giving. Definitely me. don't like this. Yeah. And what you don't want to do is just give the plasma, just the liquid part of blood, because that doesn't accomplish any goal. If the dog needs red blood cells, they need red blood cells. Mm -hmm. So you can't get red blood cells that are typed and cross-matched if you can get them fast enough. So many times that these do have to happen at the emergency clinic because they're the people that have blood hanging around in their refrigerators. And a lot of veterinary clinics, including us, aren't going to have red blood cells just idly sitting in the fridge because they're only good for about 10 days until you have to discard them. So it's not a product that has a long shelf life. Mm -hmm. 
So if your vet says, do you want a blood transfusion? It's going to cost blah, blah, blah. And you decide you want to do it. You better go sooner rather than later mm-hmm. because there gets to be a point where either they're past critical mass and their organs are so badly damaged from not having enough oxygen, or they start to throw blood clots right. and go into DIC. They throw pulmonary emboli, all this stuff starts to happen. And then this vicious cycle of no return starts to happen. So if you're going to do it, you need to get to the emergency clinic sooner rather than later. Right. Okay. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Revival Animal Health is a proud sponsor of Pure Dog Talk. As a dog breeder, it's not just a litter. It's your legacy. And your happy, healthy puppies represent your hard work and dedication. They show your commitment to your dogs, their heritage, and the next generation. You can rely on Revival to support every step of your breeding success, from parents to puppies. Breeders trust Revival to protect their females and get their pups off to a strong, healthy start. Revival's own reproductive and neonatal health brand, Breeders Edge, offers a complete line of breeding products from pregnancy to whelping and puppy care. Breeders rely on Revival's pet vaccine experts for vaccine selection and safe shipping to give their litters the protection they need. Revival's online pharmacy serves breeders with a wide variety of pet RX medications, plus a knowledgeable staff that's ready to answer any prescription questions. Grow your own healthy legacy with help from your partners at Revival Animal Health. Visit them at revivalanimal.com. Don't forget to tell them Pure Dog Talk sent you. Based on what you're saying, you've seen it in everything. You see no particular genetic link or who knows? Well, anytime you can say it's more common in this breed, Mm -hmm. like Cocker Spaniels, you have to say it's got a genetic link. The problem is we don't have a DNA test. Nobody's been able to assess what that is yet. Eventually, we'll probably have a DNA test for everything. But right now, we don't. And like I said, you know, you can see it in males, you can see it in females, you can see it in any breed. So it's a little bit variable, and we don't always know what the trigger is. So we look for cancer, which is a common trigger. We look for tick-borne diseases. We have to look for underlying causes because if there's something like cancer, that's going to significantly change the prognosis and perhaps change how you want to proceed with treatment because if your dog has you know, a big mass in his lungs or a big mass in his liver, then you're probably going to say, yeah, you know, I'm probably not going to spend $30,000 because that's only going to take care of the symptom and not the actual underlying cause. Mm-hmm. So we have to be thoughtful about it and veterinarians should take a step back and make sure that they're giving a full assessment of what the dog's problem likely is. That being said, I mean, a lot of dogs do survive this, mm-hmm. but a lot of dogs don't. We had a technician a couple of years ago that We transfused her dog, and even with all that, she still wasn't able to turn around. So it's a bad disease just all the way around. It's not a pleasant thing to go through. No, it's not. You mentioned a little bit right at the top when we were talking about triggers, and I wanted to go down the rabbit hole on this one, over-vaccinating. So hitting a dog with too many vaccines at once can be a trigger. Do you have some recommendations that you want to share on that? Yeah. And there are people who say there's no relationship with this and there's other people who say there is. So it's still a little bit unknown, a little bit controversial. But our general recommendation is to not give too many antigens at one time to any patient 
little puppy all the way to an older dog, because you can see some significant, I mean, if you think about what you're doing to the immune system, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. So two years ago at Christmas, I went in to get a COVID vaccination because I needed the booster so that I could go visit my dad. And while I was at the pharmacy, it was on December 23rd, the pharmacist said, well, you know, you're in an age category that you should probably get the pneumonia vaccination. Do you want to do that today? And I said, uh, 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 no. no did you notice it's December 23rd? And did you notice some people have bad reactions to vaccines? And do you think I really want to add that to the immune status of my poor little body right now, two days before Christmas? No, I have to work on Christmas. So no, I can't do that. <laughs> So even for ourselves, mm -hmm. people tend to be kind of cautious about how they vaccinate. And I think you should be for your dogs as well. You need to give dogs a couple of weeks between vaccinations. Now, there's sort of two sides to this. One is that the vaccine company says the fewer times you put a needle in a dog, the less likely you are to get a reaction. So in that case, I will put Lepto in with distemper because that's a combination vaccination, but I won't give it on the same day that I give rabies and Lyme disease and all the other stuff, mm. influenza and all the other stuff. Mm. Now, Bordetella, the intranasal, I kind of consider like a non-vaccination because you never do it with a needle. It doesn't go into the systemic quite the same way. It gives you local immunity mm. at your mucous membranes. It doesn't go into the system. So I'll give Bordetella with just about anything, but I really don't like giving both strains of influenza, Lyme disease, distemper with lepto and rabies, all at the same visit. I think that's just too much. And I encourage my clients to split those up, to come back another time. Mm -hmm. If they come back within a relatively short period of time, we don't charge another office visit. And I think clients appreciate that. And I think that kind of helps put our money where our mouth is, is that I'm not in this to charge you two office visits and to make extra money in this. Mm -hmm. I'm here to keep your dog as healthy as possible. So yes, I think there has to be some wisdom in that. And certainly you can have anaphylactic reactions by giving too many things at once. And historically, Lepto has been the vaccine that's caused the most anaphylactic reactions. Although in the last 10 years, the vaccines have been cleaned up quite a bit. So they're not nearly as inflammatory as they were. Mm -hmm. But going forward for these dogs, I will not vaccinate these dogs again. Period. If they've had an immune-mediated disease, they don't get vaccinated again. In Wisconsin, we can exempt dogs. Since 2004, there was a law signed that we can exempt dogs from rabies vaccination. So I sent them home with the exemption letter. And, you know, your local community can still say, no, we're not accepting that. But I think that's kind of narrow-minded. And I've never had anybody come back and say, my township or my village said I still have to do this. So mm -hmm. from that perspective, it works pretty well. I guess here's the thing. If you're not willing to go in twice for your dog's vaccinations, maybe you just shouldn't do them all. Maybe you should just skip some yeah. because it's just not healthy for the dog to have too many things at right. once. And if these dogs have ever had immune-mediated disease, they are not getting vaccinations. Probably a year ago, I saw a dog that came in that had recovered from one bout of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia and anemia, and their regular veterinarian vaccinated the dog and the dog had another crisis. And that time we couldn't turn it around. Mm -mm. So I don't mess with the immune system on these dogs. So here's another sort of squirrel. It's, you know, me oh, and my squirrels. Okay, it's okay. Immune-mediated hemolytic anemia, that particular immune-mediated disease. Now speak to me about dogs who have other immune-mediated diseases and how you feel about vaccinations as triggers there. Pretty much the same, but they're probably not as likely to die from their disease. Polyarthritis, some of the discoid lupus and some of the other diseases, GI diseases, they're not as likely to die from it 
but it still messes with their immune system. So you can do nomograms and titers, well, titers to see if the dog needs to be boosted. The states will not accept a rabies titer as an exemption from a rabies vaccination. And I have clients that get upset about that, but we have to remember that rabies is a zoonotic disease and Mm -hmm. I take it seriously. So unless a client has a really good reason to get the rabies exemption letter, I'm not giving it to them. It's only going to be if I have a dog with this particular kind of disease. So yes, you need to be careful. And then in those cases, you're going to just simply need to avoid some of the exposures Mm -hmm. that you may not be able to vaccinate your dog against. So you may not want to board your dog at a kennel. You may want to find someone to do in-home care when you're out of town. You may need to find a friend, neighbor, a vet tech. Mm -hmm. You go to care.com, you can find people to help you. Mm -hmm. So you have alternatives for a lot of these things. You just might have to think outside the box a little bit. The other kind of interesting immune-mediated disease that doesn't get identified very quickly or very easily are the sterile meningitis puppies, the puppies that end up with, oh, they call it a variety of different things, beagle pain syndrome or other things. But essentially what this is, is in young dogs, they will come in very painful. These are dogs usually under a year of age, very painful, won't move their neck, high fever, And it can look like a meningitis case. It can look like West Nile virus. It can look like encephalitis. It can look like several other diseases. It can look like a bacterial meningitis. And it's a bit of a leap of faith to say, okay, you don't want to or can't afford to do a CSF tap on your dog because that's not something your regular vet is likely going to do. So that's like, we're going to pack you up, send you to the emergency clinic. Oh yeah, that's going to take three weeks. And then we're going to spinal tap. Oh yeah, that's not going to work out either because it's expensive. Mm. So it's a bit of a leap of faith to say, all right, I think your puppy has sterile meningitis and I have to give immunosuppressive level doses of steroids. And if I'm wrong, we could make the puppy worse. So you kind of have to take a deep breath and jump in while you're holding the client's hand saying, we're in this together. I hope this is the right thing to do. But if it is within 24 hours, these patients are turning around really quickly. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people are unaware of that disease. And they're also unaware of discospondylitis in young dogs. So those are two of the things that we can see causing really severe pain and fever in young dogs. And they're complete opposites. Now, Spinal meningitis, a sterile meningitis requires steroids and does not require an antibiotic. If they have discospondylitis, you can usually see it on an x-ray and that does require an antibiotic, not a steroid. So again, that gets to be kind of tricky to say this is a young dog. It could be one of those two diseases and they get treated so completely differently that I could make your dog worse. I could make your dog miraculously better. So it's a little bit of a challenge. Well, and the immune mediated disease that we talk about you learn something new every day. So when I had a litter and it was my keeper puppy that was completely fine, like 10, 12 weeks old, completely fine in the morning and in the evening in the morning cannot get up to pee and is screaming in pain. And it's HOD, hypertrophic osteodystrophy. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I researched the bejesus out of that. Right. And the best consensus I could get out of anything and anybody was that they had determined at least specifically in Weimaraners that it was an autoimmune disease and that the triggers were a combination like vaccine, food, and some level of genetic relatedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And triggered by a vaccination. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot going on there. It's usually a young dog, but those are 
generally fairly easy to diagnose. Yeah, the x-rays are 100% diagnostic. Yeah, you see these big swollen knots above the joint. And yes, you can see on the x-ray that there's a really interesting line that goes across. So looks like their leg has just been broken. Yeah, yeah. But it's lateral. It's, you know, it's equal. If it's one front leg, it's both. It's usually front legs. So again, those are things for you to be aware of. And you can look up, you can Google those things and you can see what the x-rays look like. If you're curious about it, you can take a look. And again, it's pretty helpful. And again, that changes how we vaccinate these puppies. And there are definitely lines of dogs that are more prone than others to develop HOD. So, or HOD as my Irish setter people call it. So yeah. Oh my gosh. Vaccines have changed the lives and saved the lives of jillions of human patients, yep. animal patients. And so I don't want to sound like we're bashing vaccines. No, There's just stuff. awareness. Right. I think awareness. I still vaccinate my dogs, but I pay attention. Absolutely. You know, I don't use a particular brand of vaccine that was the brand that's what triggered that particular thing. Mm-hmm. I don't pair that brand of vaccine with that particular brand of dog food. You know, I mean, those things, like I pay attention to that. Right. So those are all things that have to be factored in. And we were just in Maryland and we went to the Civil War Museum of Medicine. And when you look at some of the things that have changed, yeah, it's pretty interesting. When you think about what one thing in medicine has changed dramatically, yes, chemo is great. Yes, imaging is great. But you look at either vaccinations or anesthesia and those two categories of management of surgical and medical prevention and disease have changed the lives of everyone on the planet. Mm -hmm. So I, in no way I'm saying vaccinations are bad. I'm saying you have to temper them. You have to be smart about them. Don't vaccinate your dog for everything, whether you do it yourself or whether you go to your vet, split it up if you can, you know, make it logical, vaccinate for the things that your dogs are at risk for, but don't vaccinate for things that they're not. So, you know, right now we aren't seeing much influenza, but when we do, we're going to booster again. And Mm -hmm. we see a lot of Lyme disease. So we vaccinate here in Wisconsin for it all the time. I wouldn't vaccinate for limes out here no. uh, at gunpoint because <laughs> we don't have it. No, but we have multiple cases a day that walk through our door mm-hmm. that are lime positive and sick. So, you know, it's where you live. It's your lifestyle based on where you live. The American Animal Hospital Association on their website has a really great risk calculator. So you can take a look mm. at that. It goes through a list of questions about what your dog's lifestyle is like. Do they go to the dog park? Do they go to the daycare? Mm. Do they play in standing water? Mm. These are all really important questions. So it's a good chance for you to educate yourself, read through what's going to be beneficial for your dog. We'll put a link for that in the show notes. That sounds like a good one. Yeah. And Lepto, you know, it probably doesn't give us a good 12 months of immunity. So when do we see Lepto? When there's standing water. When do we see standing water? Well, not in Wisconsin in November, December, and January. So if you're not going to get a full year of protection, then you should consider vaccinating in the spring when you're going to have the most exposure and you're going to get that six months of immunity being at its finest. So you have to think about some of these things and not just go, well, I don't know, the postcard or the email said just to do everything. And so I'm just going to do it all. So talk to your vet, engage with them, read through the aha list, you know, think about your lifestyle, your dog's lifestyle and do what makes sense, what's smart. It's not about how much the vaccination costs, because those are tiny little bits of money when you look at the overall scheme of what your dog's lifestyle is. But if you're going to travel to Wisconsin, if you're going to spend the winter in Florida, you know, these are things that you need to think about, not just what your little microcosm at your house is like, but 
when you're showing dogs, you're on the road. When you're going to the national and you're going to run the field events in Ohio. Yes, you are going to use tick preventative, people. <laughs> exactly. We had a dog that came back from shows in Texas and ended up with heartworm disease because she lives in Wisconsin. In the winter, she didn't think mm -hmm. about heartworm preventive and she's beaten herself up because the dog was heartworm positive. Mm -hmm. And that's the only place that it could have gotten it because he was the only dog that went at her house. And if it had been in her neighbor's backyard, her other dogs would have had it too. So- right. You know, look ahead because some of these things have to be done ahead of time, like vaccinations. Some get done behind time, like heartworm disease. And the heartworm preventives work 30 days after the mosquito bite, not before the mosquito bite. So yes. do some education of yourself and speak to your veterinary professional and take advantage of what your technicians know, because these are really smart men and women mm -hmm. and they can help you out a lot and they can be your allies in some of this stuff or getting good communication with your veterinarian. So, and like we've said before, take them pizza, take them cookies, pizza. Here them. <laughs> Take good care of them because they're take good care of your veterinarian. Exactly. Yes. Because there aren't enough of us. No, that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of which, don't forget to look for the NAIA conference coming up Memorial Day weekend. Marty will be one of the speakers. There'll be information from Patty Strand about that on another episode coming up. Or maybe it just happened. Hard to say. <laughs> Have a great day, Marty. Thank you. All right, crew. I hear from folks pretty much daily asking for a specific topic or for a series of podcasts on a topic. So ask and you shall receive. <laughs> I've done all the hard work. I've sorted, searched, and compiled eight different albums from the archives on our most popular topics. And when I say there's a podcast for that, I ain't just a woofin. Getting yours today is super simple. Just jump on puredogtalk.com backslash store and click the PDT albums image. And when you're in there, you're going to find a collection of veterinary voices. You're going to find a collection for breeding and whelping hands-on You'll find Pure Dog Talk University on dog breeding. Love the breeds. Up your game. Owner handlers, the interviews, events and sports. There is so much there. And once you're in those links, you'll be able to read the details of the topic. For a special introductory price of a buck ninety-nine, you get a link to dozens, up to more than a hundred episodes on these specific topics. And while you're there, if you or a friend or family member are just getting started, even just starting a search for your first well-bred purebred dog, you can also check out Auntie Laura's Beginner's Guide to Show Dogs at puredogtalk.com backslash book to get the foundational Pure Dog Talk episodes with bonus tracks. So hop on it, y'all. These special prices will not last. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. 
The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 